1: Welcome back to Boom.
0: Welcome to Boom. Woohoo. I'm Hannah.
1: And I'm Melissa. And today we talk with Jess Federwicks, who is an MD, PhD, and he wears a lot of hats. He is the chief and head of the Department of Mental Health at the Ottawa Hospital and a Professor and Senior Research Chair in Adult Psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Ottawa. He is also the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Psychosomatic Research.
0: We talked about the peer review process and just shared a lot of helpful tips, as well as reinforced why it's so important and should be part of our role as scientists. I was excited to talk about this, the peer review process, as I was recently asked to review a paper and didn't know, you know, where to even start. So we were kind of inspired to touch on this in in an episode of Boom. Then we also learned about his really interesting work on bipolar disorder and he shares some of his advice on prioritizing by passion we really enjoyed this interview and we think you will too let's jump on in well oh to a, bit, a of bit of boom, boom.
1: <laughs> well we're jumping into boom
0: yes let's I'll i never saw what we were jumping into. yeah it's ambiguous but we're all just gonna hold hands and jump in bit of boom Bit-of-boom. Bit bit
1: bit so today's bit of boom is related to our interview, surprise, surprise. Since we talk about the peer review process today, we wanted to share the first journal that actually established a formal peer review process and a little bit of that history
0: exciting I don't I was never much of a good history student you could say throughout (laughs) school but I'm finding as I'm getting older I'm enjoying learning about history a lot more so I'm excited to learn about this
1: that's what my mom always said that as you age history is more of your own thing because you're seeing history play out since
0: I'm getting old thank you
1: So this journal is the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, which sounds pretty fancy. The Royal Society is pretty fancy. It's the world's oldest independent scientific academy, and it's dedicated to promoting excellence in science. The Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, so this is the journal, was established in 1665 and was the first journal in the world devoted entirely to science. And therefore, it's also the world's
0: longest-running scientific journal. Wow, that's really that is very old. That's <laughs> much older than I was expecting.
1: Yeah, it's older than our the country that Melissa and I are in right now, the U.S. Wow, another fact. <laughs> it was established in London, as okay, you might imagine. Nice. You know, yeah. <laughs> the use of the word philosophical in the title of the journal actually refers to natural philosophy, which is what we would now call science. And you might recognize some of the authors that were published in this journal, just to name a few. Isaac Newton, Ben Franklin, Dorothy Hodgkin, Alan Turing, Stephen Hawking, even Charles Darwin. And the list really goes on. There's quite a few on the Wikipedia page of the you know, most notable authors that have published there.
0: Yeah, I always wondered where those people published. That's awesome.
1: And then just one other little fun fact was in 2017, the Royal Society actually launched a completely redigitized version of the Complete Journal Archive back to 1665 in high resolution and with enhanced metadata. So you can basically see all of the copyrighted material that's now completely free to access without even a login to the site. So really trying to make science accessible to the community. And there's some fun history there. So
0: that was exciting. That's so interesting. Yeah, I was thinking about what a journal in 1665 might look like. And (laughs) I guess is very different than it does now. But it's, (laughs) it's awesome that they're digitizing it so we can look back on some of the earliest publications. Yeah. I don't
1: think I've ever read one of Charles Darwin's, like, first author papers.
0: Right. And also, it'd be pretty cool to be like, I publish in the same journal as uh, (laughs) Isaac Newton. (laughs) (laughs) We
1: are excited to be talking today with Dr. Jess Feiderwitz. Jess is the head-in-chief of the Department of Mental Health at the Ottawa Hospital and a professor and senior research chair in adult psychiatry in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Ottawa. He is also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Psychosomatic Research, and we're really looking forward to learning more about what that's like and how we can be better peer reviewers, something we haven't talked about on Boom, so we're really glad you're here and thank you for being here.
2: Oh, Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, We're happy to have you on. But before we dive into peer review, can you first share with us what got you interested in pursuing a career in science and medicine? From what I could find from some brief internet stalking, it seemed to happen at a pretty early age and influenced by your family.
2: I knew I wanted to go into a career in medicine from a pretty early age. I grew up in a small town in rural northern Wisconsin that had a volunteer rescue squad. And I volunteered for that squad as soon as I turned 16. And so as a high schooler, I was taking overnight calls, and they were pretty long calls when I got called in because we'd have to often drive people an hour to Green Bay and back and then getting to the scene and all the work at the So from an early age, I knew I wanted to be a physician and went to undergraduate as a pre-med, although I did change my major four times. I did remain (laughs) pre-med, went to medical school, and I think ended up in a career that was very different than what I might have envisioned as a young boy growing up in rural northern Wisconsin.
0: Sounds like a pretty intense job for a high school student.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was. It was volunteer, but it was, you know, I would get paged like in the middle of like watching friends play in a sporting event <laughs> or you know oh at two or three in the morning. And and then once I would get paged, I would drive in to the station, we'd go to the scene, we'd take care of things, and sometimes we'd have to bring people into the hospital. And so a, a call getting called in could be two, three hours. It's very Reason. different than my practice as a psychiatrist. I, I still take call, but it's not going Going to the scene of an accident or anything like that.
1: <laughs> you had different kinds of all-nighters than most high schoolers. <laughs>
2: yeah, yes, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I'm afraid I did have I did have some situations where I did see some of my classmates while on call.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Now, jumping to today, we'd love yeah. to hear a brief overview of your current research, which focuses on primary causes of excess mortality, suicide, and vascular disease quite a range in bipolar and other mood disorders, and it looks like your work has been extremely interdisciplinary. When you worked at the University of Iowa, you were faculty in psychiatry, epidemiology, and internal medicine, and now you're a clinical investigator in neurosciences program, the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. So many words and names and departments, it's really (laughs) exciting to hear (laughs)
2: That's the, the interdisciplinary pieces and the breath is really a, a pretty astute observation. And I would say, you know, there are pros and cons of having more or less focus. I'm certainly not one of those researchers that's studying a particular gene and the protein that it encodes and only that. <laughs> I would describe my research expertise as being T-shaped. And there's been talk about that as being sort of a model for clinical and translational researchers And so the breadth of the T covers a number of areas where I can collaborate and work with other people because I have some knowledge. And then this part of the T, the vertical part of the T, for those that are listening, is where I have more depth. And I would describe those areas content-wise as being morbidity and mortality in bipolar disorder. Mm
0: -hmm. And my
2: mortality focus has been on suicide and vascular disease. And I'll just explain why briefly before I sort of go into the the methods expertise. Those individuals with bipolar disorder have a standardized mortality ratio of about two, meaning they're about twice as likely to die as you'd expect based on their age and sex from the general population. So it's a pretty huge mortality difference and a major health disparity. That's a ratio of how many deaths that you observe in a sample versus how many you expect based on their age and gender. We can look at excess deaths, which is the difference between how many you observe and how many you expect. Mm-hmm. And that allows us to, to identify sort of what causes seem the most relevant. And about a mm-hmm. third of the excess deaths are due to cardiovascular disease, and another wow. third are due to suicide. And the rest is sort of a mix of other causes. And so my focus wow. has been on those two leading causes of excess mortality, suicide and cardiovascular disease.
0: What do you think? I guess from this disease, is there some link to cardiovascular issues? With I guess I I wouldn't think of that necessarily with bipolar right. disorders. So I'm I'm curious about that.
2: Yeah, no, it's very interesting and, and likely quite multifactorial, right? So yeah. I talked about sort of what are the most relevant causes for this mortality gap, but then even within you know, one of those causes, things I think are fairly complex and multifactorial. Mm. And uh, so there was a recent paper that came out looking at sort of genetic overlap uh, between uh, risk factors, genetic risk factors for neuropsychiatric illness and cardiovascular disease. Uh, mm. And there indeed appears to be that. And so one thing that's in common between sort of neurons, uh, heart cells in the heart, cells in the uh, in the pancreas, it, or at least the endocrine cells in the pancreas is that they're excitable cells. And so, you know, wow. genetic abnormalities that might impact one could impact another. There's also evidence that individuals with mental disorders are less likely to have the appropriate screening and when identified, less likely have the appropriate treatments for a lot of risk factors for cardiovascular diseases. Hmm. So that's, that's another piece. Hmm. Uh, and there's this, there's a physician bias called sort of diagnostic overshadowing where when one diagnosis is present the physicians yeah. are less likely to think of other things and hmm. and diagnostic overshadowing indeed appears to be in place for these conditions Um, There was an interesting study where they just sent letters to family physicians asking how they would treat this patient. And in those letters, it was randomized to whether or not uh, the patient had a diagnosis of major depression, which is not an especially stigmatized psychiatric disorder and a pretty common one. Mm -hmm. And whether that was in there or not influenced the care and and adversely influenced the care when present. And that's just in a letter that's sent to physicians. And so this is an issue. Um, Wow. Patients with bipolar disorder, or persons with bipolar disorder are more likely to smoke. Maybe some may be less likely to engage in other sort of health-related mm-hmm. behaviors. And so that's another mm-hmm. factor. When the condition's identified and treatments are provided, they may be less likely to take them for a variety of reasons. And so there's a whole litany of behaviors and factors that might be influencing this. One piece that's also been interesting is that we know that there are pretty clear physiologic effects of stress. And that we see that across species. And it, it, it seems very plausible, and there's some evidence to support the idea that mood disorders may hijack the circuitry the stress circuitry and sort of cause it to be overactivated and chronically activated in a manner that could have adverse health effects as well. So there's all sorts of interesting pieces to study this, and it's certainly not something that we can identify sort of a clear sort of single cause.
0: We find that in you know all areas, but I feel like anything neuro-based and in psychology, it's particularly um, challenging to like pinpoint specific mechanisms yeah, things, or causes.
2: Things get po- get complicated pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm working on a manuscript that's looking at the suicide piece, which I which I wasn't talking about here, but we were looking at we were doing an analysis to try to see how much we could attribute various symptoms to at least cross sectional risk of having suicidal thoughts or having had a recent suicide attempt and the the fraction that we could explain by the symptoms that we were capturing which included uh, symptoms of uh, depression mania anxiety was somewhat small and so you know there's a lot of things that go into some of these complex diseases and behaviors
0: yeah, definitely. And and even sometimes the labeling of the disease is kind of an umbrella term, you know, where it's also just kind of a best guess of based on the symptoms, what disease are being labeled with. So that I'm sure also opens up a whole other... <laughs> You know, area of, of oh, yeah. challenges.
2: The, these conditions are almost certainly heterogeneous. You know, we, we know that from the genetic studies that have been so. Even though, for instance, bipolar disorder is highly heritable on the on the order of eighty percent ish. You know, there's not a clear genetic cause, and there've been large genetic studies. There have been genes that have been associated, but it's not these things are not simple. They're they're complex, okay. multifactorial, heterogeneous, um, and almost certainly our clinical diagnoses, which are descriptive, are not sort of carving things out at the joints
0: yeah and we see that a lot in movement disorders too things like ALS and Parkinson's these different movement disorders where they're just you know analyzing their symptoms and just kind of giving this um, a more of like an umbrella term or best guess of what it could what it could be but then you know it's really not necessarily that or I guess could be like the subcategories in it there's just like a whole spectrum of diseases and and more research that needs to be done.
2: When I was a resident, I had a number of faculty physicians that used to talk about how, you know, we're at the stage of the, with these sort of descriptive diagnoses and syndromes of distinguishing between like wet and dry gangrene, like was done generations ago. So we have a long way to go to, I think, to get sort of more physiologically homogeneous sort of diagnostic groupings for sure.
1: But one thing I will say that I'm hearing in, you know, all that you're talking about in your interdisciplinary work is that you really need both the, you know, statistical rigor of these tests and being able to explain, you know, variants and these things, but you also need the training and expertise as a clinician and like to be able to interpret what you're seeing. And I think it's nice that you can have both of those perspectives in both your research and being a clinician.
2: Yeah, I think those things can certainly complement each other. Yeah, they can also be a distraction, of course. Right, Like <laughs> I'm not able to sort of commit as much time in the lab as might be someone who's a non physician as well. So there's certainly trade offs, so. <laughs> and, and so I think it's it's good to have sure. people with a variety from a variety of disciplines with different training backgrounds trying to tackle some of the same problems and questions that we're facing
0: yeah yeah i think i could keep talking about this probably for the rest of the episode but (laughs) we'll try to transition a little bit um because so we met over email when i was asked to peer review a paper for the journal of psychosomatic research um, we're thank, that- thank
2: you for that great review, by the way.
0: <laughs> uh, you're very welcome. Uh, so you're the editor-in-chief for that journal. And I was nervous to give the review because I hadn't reviewed for a journal before. And so I decided to email you and just say, like, I'm a PhD student. I haven't reviewed a manuscript before, but, you know, I'm happy to. I want to contribute and learn but can you help me a little? Or like, are there journal-specific instructions? <laughs> I'm, I just want to give you a heads up. I don't really know what I'm doing. And you gave just, I was very surprised by your very just generous response. You offered resources and advice, and then you even offered to provide feedback on my review. So I could tell that you're really passionate about the importance of good peer review. And I'm, I guess I'm curious with my recent experience of my first review, if you remember what your first experience was like as a peer reviewer. And maybe that's why you're so empathetic (laughs) to my (laughs) experience.
2: I don't exactly remember the details of, like, the paper that I first did a review for. I, I know it was in 2007, so I would have been uh, in my, like, second year of my research fellowship at the time. Okay. And uh, and it was something that my mentor had handed off to me. So he had been invited to review this paper, and he suggested me as, as a reviewer, and that was sort of how I had my first experience at that, at that time. So, and you're, you're right, it is daunting. You're giving feedback... Uh, for uh, you know, I think what is the most important part of the, or at least the the, maybe not the most important is the right word because very many important <laughs> visions before that, uh, but but the ultimate process of of preparing research for dissemination, which is our goal, right, is disseminating new knowledge when we're doing research, and that is done through peer-reviewed publications, or at least primarily through that process. So it is a very important process. And I think it's, it's a responsibility for all of us. And that's one of the reasons why I take on as many reviews as I do. And in, in the process of taking on <laughs> as many reviews as I did, that's actually how I became an editor. So um, I, I had done a lot of reviews for a lot of journals and then got invited to be associate editor in several positions. And then ultimately, it was that that set the stage for becoming a journal editor
1: we actually would love to hear more about being a journal editor. You just mentioned all of the things you do and then kind of getting sucked in and um, yeah, you really know so to that.
2: yeah, so you know I think like reviewing it's it's sort of a labor of love, right? Like it's an important part of the process. I do get paid for my work as an editor, but, you know, not to the degree of what my other work does. And, and you know, reviewers tend not to get paid for their work where they're, you know, for their stuff, for advancing their science. So there's, there's sort of, a, in some ways, it's a responsibility that we have as members of the academic and intellectual community to be sort of safeguarding uh, what gets disseminated and working to improve the quality of what gets disseminated into the, into the biomedical or other scientific literatures and this year in particular has been a very interesting year as an editor so i'm not sure if you are aware but I, my understanding is that across the board for many journals at least within the medical literature and this may be this may be true for other literatures as well that the volume of submissions is way up so my journal had an uptick this past year of about 50% increase in submissions and i'm wow. told that that's i'm told that that's consistent with other journals that's <laughs> not some sort of idiosyncrasy of my journal but people are writing more uh, during these quarantines and working yeah. from home and in various sort of alternative arrangements that they've been forced to participate in, in this pandemic.
1: Yeah, finally we catching have up more on... time for reviewing too.
2: Yeah. yeah, so it's it's harder to find reviewers than too. I think, I think some people are maybe doing more and some are doing less, but because there's a the sudden increase in the volume of submissions, I think is is sort of jarring the entire system.
0: I guess that makes sense. It felt like for me too, finally catching up on writing and this kind of like backlog. When it's you know exciting to go into the lab and collect data, and I'm curious if someone is totally new to the peer review process yeah. um, and gets an invitation to be a reviewer, what advice would you give them to get started and I guess feel a little bit more confident um, in in reviewing.
2: Yeah. So there there are some online resources that are available for this, and I think I shared some of those with you. Um, mm-hmm. That you can look into. I also think another a critical piece is just setting aside enough time for it. Mm. Um, so you, I can tell from looking at reviews when when someone's really sort of dove into the paper and tried to thoughtfully do it versus whether they've quickly done it. I, I've even I've even seen sort of the unfortunate circumstance where I, I get I get email alerts when like reviewers accept or decline my invitation and when reviews come in. And I've had situations where I'm working with my email on which I do probably more often than I should. And all of a sudden, bing, someone accepted accepted an invitation to review. And so I'm excited. And then I'm working some more. And then like 15 or 20 minutes later, (laughs) bing, the review comes in. And it's sort of like, whoa, you know, this this cannot be a quality review. And you know, of course, I then go look at it and it is indeed not. And so then I need to make sure that I have adequate review of this paper, which means sort of you know getting either getting another review or making sure the other review is very right. solid and detailed or what have you. So so taking time for the process is an important piece. Another thing I think people don't realize that that I think I feel like my journal probably interfaces with a little bit more than other journals, but I think is true for probably any journal given the need for interdisciplinary team science in so many domains right now. And that is most of the papers that I'm sending out there is going to be no one or very few people that have expertise in all aspects of that paper. As an example, so psychosomatic. the Journal of Psychosomatic Research is at the interface of psychology and medicine, and there's all sorts of things that can happen at that interface, right? So I could get, I'm just completely making this up at the top of my head, but I could have... Someone be presenting a paper on psoriasis and X mental disorder, you know, and the, the association, right there's There may be very few people that published on that particular comorbidity. even there might be people that look at comorbidities with psoriasis and comorbidities with whatever mental disorder is is sort of relevant. And then, on top of that, right? they may have used a particular uh, method or statistical approach that someone may not have expertise in. So by the time you combine, the, diff, the various merging of contents that comes in with a paper and the methods that are being applied. Uh, there are a few people that have expertise in, in all of that. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I find very helpful as an editor and encourage people to do as a reviewer is if there's a part of the paper that you feel like you're, uh, have concerns about but aren't really qualified to weigh in on, or you weigh in on something but you have some uncertainty about it. You can communicate that in your confidential comments to the editor, and that's that's like a mm. perfect use of that. And so it can it can cue me into saying like, oh, I need to make sure that I have someone with expertise in this statistical method because this reviewer mm. is telling me that they don't, or that I have that I get someone that has you know this particular content expertise to complement the complement the, the expertise of the person that I have. Um, I have enough submissions that there there are some people where I have a sense of the reviewer's expertise and others where it may not be so clear. And so, don't assume that the editor knows exactly what your expertise is. Uh, And if there's a piece that you're not able to review with the level of detail, then just let them know. And then another piece is just sort of the overall mindset. And so, I think a, a healthy mindset to take into it is oftentimes we're doing these we're super busy we're squeezing them in there may be things that the authors are doing that are really irritating or that that sort of really bother you or that you find inappropriate uh but try as best you can to have the mindset of helping them improve the quality of, of that paper but also their their future work right because this is not but likely not going to be the only project they're engaged in so you it might not be fixable for this paper, but maybe you can help them understand this issue that helps them improve their future research. And so, I mean, ultimately, like we can be teachers, uh, as reviewers. And I think that that sort of mindset can be, can be helpful, especially if you find yourself sort of in a sour mood, um, or if you're, if you're <laughs> irritated by something that goes up in the paper. And I've also done when I find myself feeling like that toward a paper, I will try to, um, finish my review, but not turn it in and, and take a fresh look at it when I'm sort of I think, you know, maybe in a different way with, with fresher eyes or, or what have you.
0: So. Yeah, that's a good point. That's so funny because I was, I was actually, the next question I was going to ask is the type of mindset that you take as you go to review a paper. So that was like the a perfect next point. When I was reading online, I, some of the advice, the last thing that they said was to, uh, after you finish, take a break and go back and look at it and kind of look at the language you used and how harsh it is and if you would ever read something as uh, not, I guess weighing is this constructive versus uh, criticizing and just thinking about how others might interpret uh, what yeah. you're saying.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that I think that's good advice. I, I don't always. I sometimes do that, as you heard. Although I don't, <laughs> I don't always do that. Um, but, but I think that it, that is generally good advice. I also think though, I, and I, I see that a lot, but I don't think we should be also afraid of being critical, right? Like because we are sort of trying to safeguard the quality of knowledge and other things. So um, but as you know, you can you can make a critique with varying sort of tones that come into the <laughs> writing. And, and, I, and I can tell you I've gotten you know plenty of, emails from authors that were, you know, upset about how something was written by a reviewer or offended by it or something like that. And so, you know, and we've, if you've, if you've turned in a paper and gotten that feedback, you can understand sort of how how it can feel to get something that's overly critical. But so I don't think we need to like hold back critiques, but we can talk about maybe framing them in a way that's generous and teaching as opposed Mm. to scolding perhaps. Wow.
1: I love all of those. I'm kind of hearing like if, you know, the high level, three tips, one, take your time, really give it the time you need two, review with humility, be open about any weaknesses you might have, and use those confidential comments to the editor to your advantage there. And then three, like really having the right mindset, a teaching mindset in order to improve the work.
2: And as far as an overall focus, I think you wanna focus on the science and the research with attention to internal validity of the study. Uh, And and then making sure that they're not sort of a common thing I see is like this marketing piece in papers. And that is something that definitely will sort of can can get under my skin a little bit and making sure that the conclusions (laughs) don't extend beyond what the results can draw. Uh, And Mm -hmm. that is something I very commonly see in papers. And and I I think it's something you want to, you can help the authors to not get too many (laughs) steps ahead of that particular project.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Is there any advice, I guess, on the other side for even maybe even a seasoned reviewer, are there common pitfalls of reviewing that you see across the board?
2: For the reviewers themselves or common things that I see come up in papers as a reviewer?
0: Um, I was thinking like as a reviewer, but I think for a paper, like in the paper too, would be interesting. So okay, yeah, maybe so I'll, both. I'll start,
2: <laughs> I'll start, I'll start on, the, on the reviewer side for sure. Okay. You know, I, I think that the reviews that I get that are probably the least helpful are reviews that recommend a reject and then they have a very brief sort of pithy response, you know, where I might have like three (laughs) sentences. And so it's like, okay, you hate the paper, but I'm I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that you're giving uh, the authors a lot of opportunity to improve it here. Right. Um, And then, um, and then keep in mind that that could be paired up with, you know, multiple reviews that really love the paper. And so then it's like, okay, you know, clearly you see some opportunities, it's the things that need to be improved here, but I can't really communicate. That to the author. Mm. Um, I see a number that go beyond what you need to do as a reviewer and and that is I see some that put in and I, and I early in my career did this quite a bit actually of uh, doing a lot of copy editing for the authors <laughs> and so you do not have to be afraid to do that. I mean it's good it, it helps the authors copy edit <laughs> their paper but that is sort of taking on more than than a reviewer um, needs to. Uh, and he's you know, almost putting yourself in the role of a co-author without getting to be co-author. And, and I'll tell you that yeah. I, as both an editor and a reviewer, I've had situations where I felt like that I put so much into this paper that I was practically <laughs> an author, um, which is not an ideal circumstance, obviously. Um, but, you know, if, if there are issues with the quality of writing, I think a single generic comment mentioning that, that you know, some further copy editing for language usage, or if it's more extreme, um, you know, that professional copy editing may need to be considered. But you don't, you don't have to be the one that's doing that copy editing. You can focus on the science and the research. And, you know, if you want to and you do, I don't think that that's a bad thing. You're, you're if anything, just helping the authors write better. Um, but, uh, but do know that that's not a, a requirement, I think, for review.
1: Thank you. Those were all super helpful. And it's, I think it sounds like kind of either extreme of the spectrum art you see and like those are, you want to kind of move back to like moderate. um, Yeah. I
2: mean, a short, and a short review is fine if you don't think there's anything wrong. And, but I think, I think where the short review is a problem is if you say this paper's terrible, but you don't give any specific feedback about what needs to be improved or what's wrong with it. Or, you know, like, and I've seen some where it's like, I just, "This, this idea is horrible and this should be published or, you know, this is not new. And it's sort of like, well, it's not new, but I thought that there was, as an editor, presumably I thought uh, that there there was enough here to contribute to to the knowledge right. to send it out for review. <laughs> and, and and the reality is right that as the process of advancing knowledge, we have to replicate work, and there has to be more than one study on a particular topic. And so, right. you know, this idea that someone else is, has written a paper on this, therefore it's dis- this is disqualified, seems sort of absurd to me. Especially against the backdrop too of right of how many studies that have not been replicated or where that hasn't happened, I mean it's an important part of the process for people to look at it in a different data set or a different or more rigorous way or what have you. So,
0: yeah, that's a really interesting point that I think I haven't really heard before. But we do talk about the importance of um, replicating, being able to replicate experiments and. That's a really good point.
2: Uh, you know, I think it's my bias as a clinical researcher because ultimately, I mean, there's not like there's no single study that's going to change anyone's medical mm-hmm. practice or very seldom, anyway, right? And so it's it's sort of a, a growing of a, a of a knowledge mm-hmm. base and a literature that ultimately changes things. Uh, I know a number of editors that that use the criteria: is it new and is it true? <laughs> in my mind, you know, it's more like: is it true, and are we sure it's true? <laughs> like the true, true piece is much more important than the new piece because we really do have to have a body of knowledge on a particular topic to really understand it. In my opinion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm curious too. So we've talked about how important the review process is um, and I'm sure there, you know, as a reviewer, it can be challenging to take on reviews sometimes. Um, I'm, more, I'm wondering, are there times that you think that you should reject reviewing a paper and what are some of the reasons for that? I guess I'm, I'm curious maybe with like qualifications, but um, in terms of like time, it it seems like I'm sure there are also times where, you know, you feel very overwhelmed and is this like the right thing to do at this time? And yeah, I'm curious your thoughts.
2: That's a terrific question and really even a precocious question for someone, you know, at this stage in your career, who, you know, who's not getting a ton of invitations, but you're absolutely right. There are, there are situations where you should decline, I every year I I, every year I continue to do a a similar number of reviews, but I end up declining Mm -hmm. more because I get invited more and more as my sort of name gets gets Mm -hmm. more out there. Um, I think we do have a responsibility to review as scientists. That doesn't mean you have to accept every invitation that you get Mm -hmm. um, and and doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that you have to do a set number. Um, So things that I would consider in whether I'm accepting or rejecting one, one is how many do I have currently in my queue that I'm waiting to do? Uh, And my queue is a little bit more nebulous because I have a bunch that I have that I'm managing as an editor. But if I'm, for instance, right now, I do have one that I'm I'm late on, and so like i, I This is not mm-hmm. a good time for me to be taking on a lot extra unless there's unless the deadline is re- reasonable and gonna work. And so mm-hmm. that's one thing I consider, and the other thing I consider is is how how closely does this match my content or methods expertise. And so if I'm sort of hovering at about my capacity for the number of reviews in my queue. I will reject one that's not central to my expertise but I might reach for one that's like just squarely in my expertise it's also and I've described that t-shaped expertise right so I might be rejecting mm-hmm. some that are on that horizontal bar of the t but taking those that are on the vertical bar at, at that point I see. and then at some point if my load is too high I'll, I'll have I'll be rejecting you know any invitations Now, one thing to keep in mind is that it is so important to to decline, decline instead of reject is probably the more appropriate word, to decline invitations when you can't do them. You would be surprised at the volume of invitations I send out that just get ignored. And then what happens is it's just waiting in the system for someone to respond until it expires. And there's, you know, I set those dates. And I don't even remember what mine is. I feel like it's 10 days or two weeks or something like that. But that's, if you, if you know, you can't do it or don't want to do it, or it's not appropriate, it's best to just decline right away because then I can see Mm -hmm. that it's declined in my queue. And I know I need to invite more reviewers. Otherwise what's happened is there's about a two week delay that gets added for the authors and getting their Mm -hmm. feedback. And then ultimately this, this, paper getting published or being able to be disseminated to the broader community. Um, so I strongly encourage people to decline those invites if you can't do them.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um,
2: now, now, that being said, sometimes I'm like on that fence, like I described, <laughs> and I might, I, might, <laughs> I might sit on it a while before accepting it. Um, but, but please do decline. It, it really makes the editor's job easier.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Another piece of advice that you gave me was to keep a log of all of the reviews that you do. And I thought that was a great piece of advice that I hadn't seen anywhere else. And so I'm curious if you could touch on that. And if there's any other advice like that, that maybe we wouldn't think about. Um, when we start as we are reviewing. Yeah,
2: I, I do keep a log. I started it a couple of years in and it's much easier if you start earlier. So for those uh, so those junior investigators on this, I encourage you to keep track. I keep track of an Excel file. I have a column for a year. I have a row for the journal name, and then I keep track of how many I do. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, this helps in a number of ways. One, it helps me communicate how much, how engaged I am in this process. And I think it's a really important process uh, and one that gets, I think, short shrift uh, within the scientific community. Uh, this The second is, it, it, I, I feel that this is an important responsibility as a scientist. And so it allows me to keep track of... Like how many am I doing in a given year and am, am I sort of maintaining what I, think is, what I think is sort of my share more than my share? I don't think we want to do way more than our share mm-hmm. uh, and we don't want to do less than our share, but I try to be in that my share or more range. Um, and uh, so, so that's helpful. It also gives me a sense of what journals are sort of reaching out to me and that I have sort of a connection or a relationship with. Um, and, and so that can be helpful. Um, there are online services for this as well, so I use Publons, which seems to be the, one of the more popular ones. Uh, it is it is run by a competitor of my journal, but I don't really care so much about that. And so what I do is when I get my thank you, I forward it to Publons, and then I update my Excel file, and so then I have sort of both records that I can keep track of. The other thing that that has come up from this is I've had some journals that seem to utilize me very heavily and uh, like more heavily than I utilize my own editorial board for my journal. And so on, I think two occasions I've said, you know, I can, you know, I'm happy to continue to review for you, but I just wanted to let you know that I've reviewed for you like 12 times this year and eight times last (laughs) year. And, you know, please consider me for your editorial board or something like that. And so I've gotten sort of connected with journals that way. Um, you know i i don't think you want to be obnoxious about that but if you really are like reviewing more papers than a typical editorial board member it, it's sort of worth sort of letting them know that you're you're sort of you know carrying more than your weight at that time so and then i can also see how i'm spreading it around and sort of what journals I'm, I'm managing so it doesn't take me a lot of time i just get in the habit of as soon as i get that thank you email forward it to publons update my excel and then i'm done and then also on my CV, I communicate like how many reviews I average a year and and I put huh, it within a big okay. range. Like, so between between 2018, 2008 and 2012, I average you know, this range per year and wow. this range this many. And so it's a nice way to communicate that you're sort of doing your part. And I think that also may encourage others to be like, oh, wow, I'm, maybe I'm not doing as many reviews as I could be. <laughs> Because we really do need, we do need more people doing peer review and more people putting a full effort into. And that's, I Mm -hmm. think, such a critical piece, as critical of a piece as, as people doing the science.
1: Yeah. For sure, I kind of think of it as like science jury duty. You know, yeah, like that's do a your great. do your part.
2: Oh, that is a great analogy. I hope you don't mind. I, I may I may borrow from that. <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I'll try to cite you if I if I, oh, yeah. if I if I remember the source. But yeah, that is such a great example, right? Because it really is a duty. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I but love I love that. that you're keeping track of it and be, making it sort of public, you know, putting it on your resume. I've never seen that on a resume. Um, so I, I think, or CV rather, I think that's. Yeah.
2: I yeah. So I, I list the journals and then I put the total number that I do per year on there. Um, and because and, and, and I'm trying to communicate that I think this is important because it, it is.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I love the journey duty analogy. That's, that's, gonna, that's gonna stick with me for a long time.
1: Good. I hope hopefully that doesn't deter people from it. Yeah, that's right. It's like trying
2: to get out of journey yeah. duty. Yeah.
1: Oh, I know them. Well, I guess that if you do know them, it gets you out, right? So <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of this really helpful advice. A lot of our reviewers are younger, or sorry, reviewers, a lot of our audience and listeners are younger. So I think this will be really helpful in helping them set up their career. Great. Well, I hope
2: it it inspires your audience to, (laughs) to sort of, you know, take seriously this important piece of the scientific process, for sure.
1: Yeah, I was kind of going with, we have a lot of younger listeners that uh, I think will really benefit from all the advice you've given. And we heard that you also gave advice to some students to prioritize pa- by passion. Yeah, like you've got a lot of things to kind of prioritize in your life. So we'd like to just hear about what you meant by that and tell us a little bit more. Oh,
2: thanks for asking about that. I, that, is, that is something that seems sort of goofy to say, but that I really am passionate about is this idea of how do we prioritize. I, I went to, when I was junior in my career, I went to a a time management or or some related sort of workshop for faculty. And they were talking about prioritizing by deadline, by importance instead of prioritizing by deadlines. And and I sort of walked away from that saying like, Oh, that makes sense, uh, but we still need to meet our deadlines. And it's not especially inspiring. And so this, (laughs) this brings brings me back also to, I referenced changing majors several times in college. And and one Mm -hmm. of the reasons I ended up changing majors is I was, setting my schedule for classes and uh and i was at that time a biochemistry major and i was dreading a number of the classes that i was that (laughs) i was that i was setting up and i was very excited about a number of my classes in philosophy and psychology and so then i just sort of thought to myself like well if i'm really excited about these classes and i'm dreading these what am i doing you know and so um so i changed majors to philosophy and then later to psychology Um, (laughs) still was, was pre-med throughout that. But I, I think that we're most productive when we're doing something that we're excited about. Hmm. And, and that excitement is, I think, you know, the measure of, of that, of that passion. And so in, in my mind, I want to be as productive as I can and have as much impact as I can during my limited time here. And, uh, and so if I'm doing things that I'm most excited, most passionate about, I'm most likely to be productive and now, of course, that has to be tempered by some realism about <laughs> what things are important. Um, and I think you still have to be conscientious enough to meet your deadlines. Uh, but oftentimes, I'm sitting down and there's multiple things I can sit, start working on or, or put on my schedule at that time. And I try to think about what do I have the most energy for right now? And, mm. uh, and throw it into that with the idea that I'll catch up on the, the things that are important, and the things that I have to do by a certain time, because I'm just that kind of person that I'm not going to drop the ball on stuff. Uh, but it, it, as much of my time as I can dedicate to things that I have excitement and energy for the more productive I'm going to be. So, I, so that, yeah. And, and I, I try to have that conversation with people that I'm bringing on to in my, my new role as mm. a department head is trying mm. to get them, trying to get my, you know, new faculty to be thinking about what is it that they're most excited about because that's where they're probably going to have the most meaningful, satisfying, and productive careers. Is if they're able to find whatever that is.
0: Yeah, I, I we completely agree with that, and and we talk about the, uh, gauging our energies mm-hmm. uh, all the time. Uh, Hannah and I do, and so and it's really nice to hear that you encourage that to faculty that are coming on um, and how you did that in your life with your courses and just kind of that initial recognition that, you know, some things I'm excited for and some things I'm not. And how can I make more of the things that I'm, that I am excited about and bring the energy.
2: Yeah. And you still have to do some of those other things, but if you're paying attention to what you have that excitement and energy for, I think you'll be happier, more satisfied, more productive,
0: Definitely. That energy can also carry over to some of the things you're less excited for. Oh, absolutely. those a little less painful.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's true. I think that's true. You know, that that brings up another thing that I sometimes talk about, and that, that is the idea of jobs and various things as being a package. And so Mm. these things come together as a package, and some things in that package are fun and exciting, and other things are a real chore. And, And and if you can mentally tie those things together, like yeah, yes, I you know have to do this, you know, deal with this sort of patient you know, there's, there's this very difficult uh, situation with, um, in the US, I used to refer to the examples of having to call insurance companies for pre-authorizations, right? That's just part of having to, I love caring for patients and work for patients. I hate calling insurance companies for a pre-auth, you know, yeah. th- that's part of the package. And you know what I mean? Like I have, to, and I, I mentally lump it together to realize that I need to do these things. You know, my current job, the thing that I'm most passionate about is is setting up positions that nurture people's career development and, you know, having discussions mm-hmm. like I talked about, about what people are most excited or energized by. And, you know, the sort of human resources, sort of drama, sort of situations that come up in mm-hmm. any in any place, I think are, are, are a lot less fun, right? But it's mm-hmm. part of that package, right? Like, I can't just like help people create their dream <laughs> position and then not deal with, with these other difficult <laughs> situations, right? These things come together. And in my mind, I try to mentally marry some of those things. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah that's a really that's a really great way to frame it especially as a package so kind of like a present a gift you know yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: You, you, you can't be a grad student with also with all, with, without also having some of the exams right Like you can, <laughs> yes um, and be able to work in this sort of cutting-edge lab but not, not also have some of the stresses of the demands that come with that lab right
0: yeah exactly. yeah yeah definitely uh, well, thank you for that uh, we're, so one of the questions that we always like to ask and, and we like to talk about Uh, failure a lot on the podcast so is there a time in your career or even you know we talked a lot about switching majors and I guess like building up to your career is there a time that you felt like you failed and what did you learn from that experience?
2: Yeah so two pieces I'll I'll mention one is so I think that the entire process of science for, for for anyone that's honest right is a series of, <laughs> of regular failures and rejections right i mean I, i've had i've had many papers rejected from journals i've had you know many grants that didn't get funded um mm-hmm. and 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 that that is i think part a natural part of the process and i think it's important for people in senior positions to to be open about that so that way you know junior people coming in are completely demoralized or think that their career is going to fall apart because of this paper didn't get accepted somewhere and and frankly you know the peer review process is super important, but we, we, I, it's not perfect. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've had some papers that ended up, um, in, in particular, uh, negative studies, uh, that I've found get rejected from multiple journals that I knew were more rigorous than some other papers that I had published. And, uh, and I think you just kind of have to persist and take the mindset that's, that's part of the process. I had a talk with some junior people as far as, I think it was some sort of mentorship symposium in Europe. And I'd mentioned that I had many papers rejected and I had a junior person tell me, you probably shouldn't tell people that as the editor. And in and I, my, my mindset, it's like, no, I actually, I feel like I should, like yeah. I'm rejecting papers routinely and I shouldn't be coming off as if I'm like somehow holier than thou. And you know, <laughs> and, and my work is better than everyone else's. My work gets rejected too. And not all of my papers are are my best work. I, you know, some things I have a better opportunity opportunity or have, have a more exciting result. And that's just part of the, part of the process. Um, so a, a, another piece is that I, ha- I have struggled to focus and I think that that can be a dr- drawback of the prioritization by passion. And, you know, I describe this sort of nice T-shaped thing, but there, there are things that I get excited about that, that could be a distraction from some of the things that maybe I should be focusing on more. And so that's a challenge that I've certainly uh, struggled with throughout my career. And I think I will continue to struggle with because it's just sort of my nature, uh, to get excited about things. And and, and it's also my, my deliberate strategy to prioritize my passion. And so uh, that's something that I need to be sort of careful about.
0: I can totally relate to that. I think that's one of the uh, good things about having my advisor at this point is he is very good about catching me and pulling me back. And i be a little bit concerned when I, you know, don't have somebody to do that anymore because I get so excited. I'm easily excitable and kind of, you know, veer off and want to like pursue yeah. something new. So right now it's nice to have somebody to reel me in, but uh, I'll have to like try to figure out some strategies to, be able <laughs> to do that on my own in the future.
2: Yeah. I think it is great to have an advisor and mentor that helps with that. That is a consistent piece of mentorship and advising that I've received as a, as a mentee and advisee. Okay. And and I'll tell you that I haven't always followed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Da Vinci had tons of, he was a huge procrastinator, had tons of unfinished products, and like was an extreme perfectionist. So I feel like he had, it's so funny to see like how different people um, sort of deal with these things. And I think it's nice to encourage that excitement, like you're saying, and, and prioritize by passion. And then yeah, also have people to support you and help you kind of keep you on track when you need it. <laughs> yeah.
2: And you know, while while I generally think that, you know, that as a, as a strategy, I could have been more focused throughout my career, it's 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 also very hard for me to identify a project where I'd say like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done this or that. You know, <laughs> you know not not that there aren't any, but but oftentimes, you know, I I had fun. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, before we ask our last question, we've been really excited to talk to you. We're really excited for others to get to connect with you. Uh, We're wondering how can people learn more about you and your work? Like, do you have uh, a Twitter, Instagram, you know, where, where can people follow you?
2: I, I don't. Um, I, don't ha- I don't have any sort of social media presence in, in, in my professional life at, at this point. If people are interested in my work, I encourage them to check it out and read it. People are welcome to email me if they want to talk about it. That does bring a piece of advice, though, that, that I also have for people is that I encourage you guys did your homework before meeting me. You read some <laughs> interviews of me. You're familiar with yourself with my work. And I, I think that's a good approach in general for networking. So whether it's you're meeting someone at a conference, you know, take a few minutes to look over and see what they're doing. You'll, you'll remember it better because you have a person that you're connecting it to, or when you're doing job interviews to, you know, take the extra time in preparation of looking over the work of the person that's interviewing you, picking, picking a couple of pieces that are of most interest to you and reading those. they don't necessarily have to be their pieces that were their most cited or their, their biggest piece, but the pieces that maybe are most appealing to you. Or you're meeting with someone even at your own institution for lunch or coffee to talk about something, You know, try to take a little time to, to get a sense of what they're doing. You might be surprised at, at stuff that they were doing that you had no idea or weren't aware of either. Um, so that, that's, I think, something that can be valuable. But perhaps I need to step up my social media presence. uh, I think think right now I don't have the bandwidth or the passion for it.
1: Well, thank you again for really everything that you've shared. We have one final question, which we love to ask. And we're really excited to hear your answer is, what are you most excited about for the future of medicine?
2: That's a great question. And uh, I don't have a super clear answer for that. And with, with within my field, I'm hoping to circle back to what we talked about earlier, that we're able to, to better parse out sort of more physiologically homogeneous groupings. But the other piece, I think that the piece that I think makes me most excited about any research is something that's actually going to improve people's lives. And in the case of medical research is going to change practice. And there really isn't a lot of practice-changing research that goes on, and so I think it's really important for us to sort of keep our eye on that ball. And I'm not saying that work in sort of the basic science that doesn't have direct clinical applications isn't valuable or other things. But what gets me most excited about is something that I'm able to that I may be all able to offer to a patient and their family mm-hmm. five or ten years from now. And I don't know what that is. Perhaps you guys will will bring some of that about.
0: Yeah, I hope yeah. so. <laughs> Thank you. That is exciting and something to think about. And I I think, you know, sometimes it is that we don't have something so clear as to what it looks like that we're excited about, but I think just having that driving motivation for, for the work that we're doing is, um, is really great. So thank you for sharing that and for sharing your advice about peer review, for sharing some of your research, which I thought was super interesting. It was really nice to finally meet, you know, beyond email and uh, get to know you and your work better. So we really appreciate it.
2: Great. Thanks for the invitation, the opportunity. It was great meeting you guys. I enjoyed this.
0: So thank you again to Jess for that awesome interview. We covered not just the peer review process, but so many other topics that were really exciting that we weren't expecting, but we're happy to hear about. And now we will talk about some of our research fails. Woo. Woo.
1: Melissa and I have really fun phone calls sometimes, and I feel like she had a fun one where we figured out a research fail that she had to say we did sort of this exchange. Like, Melissa has to share this one if I share this one. And both of the things are escaping me now. So maybe that's a fail in itself.
0: I remember yours. Yours is that you, <laughs> <laughs> yours is that you needed to do work in the bathroom because mm. I forget why. It's warmer or... It's warm,
1: yes. It's yes. warmer in your no.
0: bathroom. So you post up to do your work in the bathroom.
1: It's true. My bathroom is so nice and warm in the morning and my bedroom is freezing, which makes me really not want to get out of bed. But <laughs> yeah, if I can go to the nice warm bathroom, there's some motivation there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, I remember mine. I, we we're in lab meeting, like just the very start of lab meeting, and I spilled an entire water bottle full all over myself like I don't you know when you see something happening in slow motion and you just like it you're just watching it and it's like not stopping like I just watched like <laughs> 30 ounces of water just spill all over me and it like uh, I was standing outside for lab meeting and it like it got all over my clothes but also then like into my shoes and we we're all like presenting at lab meeting wish, and there's wish. never yeah there's never a good time to leave so I just like stood there in squishy shoes and just like totally soaked for two hours which wasn't super fun
1: (laughs) and I have one other research fail that happened with you know when you're just so deep in you know some data or writing that you just don't really see some of the obvious things because you're just like if you just walked up to it and looked at it you'd be like oh my gosh this is staring you straight in the face but sometimes when you're just like deep in it So this happened to us and we were trying to say that these two data sets were similar and we had these two plots to say, look at both of them. And since the two plots look similar, we're like, oh, a similar trend is happening in both of these data sets. But it turns out that we just were mistakenly plotting the same data twice and it was like (laughs) slightly different because of (laughs) the way the plot was rendered that the plots like that we, we didn't notice it right away but we eventually noticed it then yeah. we're like well how did we not see this? <laughs> that, <laughs> that was fun
0: yeah that's right just being like oh wow these like are really exhibiting yeah. the same pattern." <laughs> exactly like wow we've really found something <laughs> we really found something here <laughs> and then you're like wow we really found a mistake here <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> this is why peer review is important everything yes. we just talked about good to have lots of
0: eyes. Yes, exactly. Well, (laughs) good catch. (laughs) And thank you for listening to this episode of biomechanics on our minds.
1: And thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics for all of their wonderful support. Thank you to Peter Washington for the awesome music. And if you'd like to submit a research fail, someone to interview, or just get involved in Boom, please email us at biomechanicsonourminds@gmail.com, at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at biomechanicsoom.
0: Or follow us on Instagram now at Biomechanics on Our Minds. We're going to be posting exclusive content on Instagram, <laughs> so you're not going to want to miss it. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best ad I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, follow at Biomechanics on Our Minds for all of the best content, all the best updates, the best you way just to
1: convince start- me to follow. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I convince you to unfollow and then you follow it.
1: (laughs) A thousand times so you get a thousand notifications. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah.
0: Biomechanics Biomechanics off our our minds. minds.
1: Hey, I think that was a good one.